0: good morning let 's find our seats it 's good to be together um, it 's always good and um, to worship together and I know we have a lot of people away on vacations because of some event called Thanksgiving or something but um, it 's good to um, be here worshiping couple of things coming up. I know we did announcements earlier, but each week during this season i 'm trying to highlight one of them because there's just a lot of stuff going on and great opportunities to get involved, be involved in family life at Village. Um, as Heather was mentioning, we did the packing party this week and, and got a 73 shoe boxes packed. This Wednesday night, we're, actually, we're also taking a group over to the Operation Christmas Child Warehouse to um, help prepare those boxes for shipping. And I know that sounds like, oh, what do you do? Just put them in a box, put a label on them. No, no, we actually have to go through every box that comes in from every location in Southern California and make sure that the things in there are correct and there's no contraband and knives or whatever liquids. Liquids are worse than knives. So I don't know. But, um, and uh, make sure those are okay. And then we package them up. Really vital service. And that's this Wednesday night. You can either sign up online through the link on the the Village Facebook page, or see Heather, and she can help sign you up and give you a link. I think Pastor Andrew may have sent home a link as well last week. Only five spots left, so and we probably can't get more. So get those quickly. It's a lot of fun. Uh, my my kids actually, Mark's the only one that's been old enough till now, but um, have come with me, and it's just been a great opportunity. So come to that. Also, in your worship folder. You see a living nativity card. Again, like we say every year, this is not for you. It's in your worship folder, but this is for you to give to somebody else. You guys all know living nativity is happening. And you know when it is, but this is to give to someone else, to invite um, someone else. If you need more of these, there's a whole stack at the worship center, or welcome center. And you can um, grab some more. Great opportunity to invite people. For those that have signed up to help, emails are going out this week of, of more of the details now that we're getting close to December. Scripts are going out today as well as casting today. So um, please be watching your emails and we'll be in um, contact about that. Let's move to Esther though. And so as part of our tradition through Esther We ask one of our church family to come up and read the chapter we're going to be studying. So Carolyn, if you could come up and read chapter 8. Esther chapter 8 this morning.
1: On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agatite and the plot that had devised he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agatite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews, in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time, in the third month, which is the month of Savan, on the twenty-third day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them.
0: Thank you, Carolyn. The story continues, right? It's been a good story. It's been a true story, but it's amazing to see God work. But in in light of thinking through stories and stories we like, one of the features we're often drawn to in a good story or a good book or a good movie is the reversal, right? Right? the dramatic reversal where everything looks like it's going one direction. And and usually if if it's a good movie and and it's drawing us in, it's not a good direction. And we're like, oh, no, 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 everything is, we're doomed. And and then all of a sudden, boom, something changes and the whole story turns around, right? And and everyone in the movie theater cheers. And it's just, it's part of storytelling, part of what we love. And I think we like it because we want to see good triumph. We want to see what is right win out, and we know we're living in a fallen world where we are fighting evil every day, and we are fighting things not working out, and and that's an angst that we deal with. Think about some of the movies that have been so popular. We have to start with Star Wars, the best movie ever after Princess Bride. But um, and think about the first, the real Star Wars movie, and and, and you're you're coming. And now the arguments start. Um, and, and at the end of the movie, the, the Death Star is coming into line to destroy the rebellion and destroy the freedom fighters. And, and if that happens, there's not 25 more movies. And, and it, it's about to all end, right? All hope is lost. This huge, huge battle station that is impenetrable, except for some flaw that some engineer made, but okay, um, is about to destroy everything. And then one guy in his little X-wing accidentally or, or hits this perfect shot and it destroys the whole thing and the whole movie changes, right? And I've just described every Star Wars movie, every superhero movie. Ladies, I've just described every romance movie too. And you're like, no, no, there were no Death Stars. Okay, so, so romance movies. And, and so we've perhaps had the Hallmark Channel on a lot. girl meets guy, but she's there because she's engaged to some other guy who really isn't good for her. And everything is going down to this wedding to this guy that isn't good for her. But in this small town, she meets this perfect guy. and, and but, but then she goes off to get married. And at the very end, finds out it doesn't work and ends up with the right guy, right? Dramatic reversal. It's not just Star Wars. We, we love these things. Hallmark is making millions out of this formula. Millions of movies. (laughs) But there's a lot to love. Justice wins. What is right wins. There is usually a hero. There is usually a savior. And ultimately, I think all of this points to a hole in our hearts that is looking for a savior, looking for the savior where God has built into us this desire for heavenly things and this desire for, for right to win that should be drawing us to Jesus Christ and what He's done and how He's done it. Well, we come in our story to a situation that seems dire. It's a little irreversible. And, and in all of these things, the more irre, irreversible the situation is, the more majestic the reversal is, the more majestic the salvation is. And we come to it in Esther, but think through the Bible. You know, think of how many times God has come to a wife that can't have children, who's barren. Sarah and Rebecca and Hannah and Elizabeth. And everything turns around and that's part of His plan. Why is that the way He works? Because He gets the glory. Because it shows us who God is. Think of the famine in Egypt and, and people all over the world are going to die, but God intervenes and Joseph turns things around and saves the line of Christ. Think of the slavery in Egypt and it seems like Israel is doomed and it's an impossible situation and God frees them and delivers them. Think of David and Goliath. Why are we drawn to that? Because it's a dramatic reversal. And good triumphs over evil, but the seemingly little guy wins. Gideon, and, and quite frankly, most of the stories in the book of Judges, that, that God comes alongside and reverses what looks like is the inevitable. Think in terms spiritually, the penalty of sin. Think of the crucifixion and the dramatic reversal three days later. Amen? Where God changes everything. God is a God of the impossible. God is a God that loves reversals, especially reversals that can only be attributed to him because he is constantly drawing people to himself. And so now we do come to Esther. She's already last week come to the king and and Haman's plot is exposed and for those of you that haven't been here been been here and following along we saw that Haman in the, in the the kingdom of Persia in the Persian empire the second in command had this plot to destroy the Jewish nation to destroy Jews in all the kingdom to annihilate their their culture annihilate their race and so he is implementing this plan. King is just like, oh, yeah, do whatever you want. And, and, and it's just going forward. And last week, Esther, who God, through a whole series of providential coincidences, brought her to this place to be the person that would make a difference for, for, for Christ, for God, would make a difference for the salvation of her people. And so last week, Pastor AJ shared with us how she went in to the king and she did the, the last feast and she revealed what Haman was doing and through a whole sequence of events, the king is mad and and, and he is angry and, and Haman is, is panicked because he's had the worst day ever and he ends up with all of his stuff hung out to dry, literally. And he's dead on the gallows. And so we think the story's done. We think the story's done. But the problem is, who's saved at this point? Mordecai and Esther. Who isn't saved yet? Ten million Jewish people that live throughout the empire. And so the story's not done because the threat is still there. The edict to annihilate all Jews about nine nine months from now is still in place. And so we come to chapter 8. Where God is still at work, God still hasn't forgotten, and what seems to be irreversible, according to Persian law, what seems to be inevitable—the destruction of the Jewish people—God says, "Eh, I got this. I got this," because nothing is impossible with God. So turn with me to Esther chapter eight. Esther chapter eight. We'll explore this next scene of the story, this next act in the divine play of God's sovereignty. And we'll explore it. Esther chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one under a seat right around you. We'd love for you to grab that, take that, and um, open it up and follow along with us so we can see the story just right out of the Bible. And as we think of today, as we think of today's chapter, the the main point that I want to think through is that we should never lose hope and courage because our faithful God is in the business of reversing the irreversible. He's in the business of reversing the irreversible actions of evil In this fallen world and bringing glory to himself. I know that's a a mouthful, but never lose hope and courage because God is faithful. He reverses the effects of evil in this fallen, despicable world. All to bring glory to himself. He gives wisdom to do that. He gives courage to do that. He arranges events so that happens. And right from the start, I want to say, when, when we think of, of a faithful God reversing the evil in this world and a faithful God that we can trust and a faithful God that does great things that we sing about, those are all right things to think about. But right from the start, I, I want to put this asterisk on it and say he does the things that are according to his will. Our faithful God does great things that he wants to do for his glory and our ultimate good. This does not make him Santa Claus. This does not say that he should do everything I want him to do. It does not say that every situation is going to turn out the way I desire and the way I envision it. That isn't a God that does great things. That's a God that does selfish things that I want. But we have a God who does great things for his glory and our ultimate good. And he reverses the irreversible. Nothing can stop that. And that is why we can trust him. And that is why we can praise him. And so chapter 7 at the end said, so they had hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. There was sin, there was a payment for sin, and the wrath of the king was abated. Now keep in mind, there's a lot of comparisons in this book between poor, the pitiful king Ahasuerus, and the almighty king Yahweh. And here we see his wrath was abated because the penalty for sin was, was taken and we're going to see in the grand scheme of the Bible and the story of the Bible that Yahweh's wrath was abated, but it was abated through Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the bigger picture. And so we come to, to the text, and really we're looking at God completing his plan in this chapter. He's continuing and preserving the line of Jesus for that salvation, for the work that he has planned. We're going to look at four reversals today. And again, think in terms of reversals. This chapter, the author intentionally is writing things with the same terminology that was earlier in the book to show that God is reversing what evil had planned. Over and over, God is reversing what evil had planned. So reversal number one in verses one and two. Possession or being someone's possession to wealth and honor. So Esther and Mordecai are really possessions of the king, uh, toys of the king for, for that matter, and they will now shift and reverse from that to being people of honor and people of wealth. Esther and Mordecai received the honor and riches that were Haman's. And so we, we again get the reversals and the comparisons. Verse one. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman. And what that means, it's more than just a building. It's more than, just, oh, got a nice 2,000 square foot house. And Haman was a rich man, remember? And and, and he had offered all this bounty for killing off the Jews. He had offered to pay for some of that himself. He was a wealthy man, second in charge. And when it says that the king gave to, to Esther the house of Haman, his estate, think estate, think everything he had, his wealth, all the property, all of the servants, everything was given to Haman. See, in Persian law, if someone was convicted of being a traitor or certain other crimes all of their their material, all of their possessions, all of their property was seized by the state. That's just how it worked. And the king here, was Esther had such favor with him that he took all of that from Haman, who's hanging outside, and he gave it to Esther. And so we see God reversing uh, the, the circumstances that everything that Haman had grasped for and plotted for and arranged for now falls to Esther, and we're gonna see Mordecai. So Hazarus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king. So Esther brings him in, for Esther had told what he was to her. So the idea is that Esther, as she's talking to the king, she begins to tell the story of Mordecai. You know, I, I was orphaned and he brought me in, and remember he saved your life in that plot. And and she just she just tells the king who Mordecai is and what parties had and all this. And so in verse 2, the king took off his signet ring. Who had the signet ring? Haman, right? That was, that was taken from him, last chapter. Takes off his signet ring, and he, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. And so the one that wouldn't bow down, that, that Haman demanded bow down, and he wouldn't, now suddenly takes Haman's spot. He's the second in command, the prime minister, so to speak. He now is set, Esther sets him to manage all of the wealth and all of the property, the whole estate of Haman. And Mordecai and Esther have gone from really nobodies. And you can say, well, she was the queen. She, she was a servant of the king. She, she was a queen at the king's whim. And she's gone from that to this woman of courage. Now her and Mordecai have positions of honor and positions of wealth the responsibility that goes to that what a reversal what an amazing reversal where we see God honoring the righteous and God dealing with the wicked so much of Esther we can come back and see proverbs in there proverbial statements remember proverbs are general truths that are true most of the time they're not absolute promises but generally this is true and in proverbs 13:22 we read a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. The sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. And the, the wording here, so much of it echoes chapters 3 and 4 when Haman came to power. But now we have Haman being stripped of power and all of his wealth, the sinner's wealth, all of his authority given to someone that's righteous. This is worth praising God for. This is a testimony to God's righteous, just hand. And if we think about, if we, if we, even from this, if we learn some lessons, it's that in the end, the folly of sin, the folly of sin, greed will lead to loss. In the end, sin doesn't pay. It, it may feel good for a while. It may look like it's beneficial here on this planet, but it won't be forever. Usually it actually gets dealt with in this life, in my experience, at some point, because, because sin is folly. But even if we don't see it, it will ultimately be judged. And we talked about our four themes of Esther. One of them is exposing the folly of sin. And this reversal exposes the folly of sin and shows that God rewards the righteous. He honors the righteous. And so we think about that. When we try to get ahead, we should be thinking of that. When we're trying to wrestle for position at work or trying to amass whatever we we can in money or or, um, retirement or whatever, there is a folly with sin if we're doing that the wrong way. I'm not against planning. Plan, definitely, and we have other proverbs on that. But there is a folly to doing that in a way that is, is racked with greed, that is racked with stepping on other people to get ahead, and not considering other people. And we see that in Haman. He's not only dead, but everything he had is stripped from him and given to the righteous. Big picture, though, for a minute. That's sort of just a sub-theme or sub-idea from those two verses. Big picture is God is still at work putting Esther and Mordecai in positions to still save the people. So they're saved, right? We talked about that. But the people aren't. But now they have been given the power and the authority, the prominence to do something more. To do something about it. And this is a decision point for Esther and Mordecai. They're saved. Right? They have everything they need. they got cushy lives now. They can just sit back and say, we are not going to rock the boat anymore. Our lives are good. And and, and I can see the temptation of self-centeredness. I can see how easy... That, that would be to come in. But the next act in the story, the next reversal, they don't stop there. And they're willing to step out courageously, specifically Esther, and risk everything, risk everything to still save her people. Reversal number two, risk to authority. Reversal number two, risk to authority. Because of Esther's courage and obedience, she and Mordecai are given authority that the authority that was Haman's to write a new edict. That'll make more sense as we go through this text. But because of Esther's courage and obedience, the authority that Haman had is given to Esther and Mordecai, and they are allowed to write a new edict to save the people. And so risk to authority or obedience to authority is this reversal. Verse 3, Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. And so probably some time has passed. Probably Haman's estate is now all transferred over. All of this has happened and the Jews are still not saved. King Ahasuerus, I think he's a little clueless because he doesn't do anything about it. He's like, well, I saved the one I love. I saved her cousin. We're good. So we're not good. And so we see from verse 3, Esther has to go into the king again. That is a risk again. It risks her life again. Now, because of the last time, she has seen that the king favors her, and, and there's, there's, a, there's a lot of things that are working in her behalf here, but she still goes into the king. And she fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. She is continuing to courageously plead for her people. And we see the passion here. We see the emotion coming out. 10, 15 million lives are at stake. And so she enters in. She, she ignores that she is saved. And she enters in risking her life to beg for the salvation of her people. That's character. That's character that goes beyond self. That is courage. Courage. And that, that should impress us and motivate us in so many different ways. And so she goes in, and then in verse 4, when the, when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, remember if he doesn't hold out the scepter, the guy with the axe kills her. But he, but he holds out the golden scepter to Esther, and she rose and stood before the king. And at this point, they, they've gone through enough with, with all of this with Haman that she's just laying out the issue. And she said, if it pleased the king, and I have found favor in his sight. And if the things seem right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hammedatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. And so she's begging him. Now, now she does this in a brilliant way, doesn't she? She shows great deference here. She go, She shows proper respect. But she's asking, please reverse this. If it pleases the king, she respects his role, his opinion, his authority. If I have found favor, and so now she's appealing to his love for her. That's not dumb. Appealing to his love for her, the favor that she has with him. She appeals to her reputation, which had to be good for her to say this. And even as she, as she does this, if you notice toward the end, she really is careful here to not blame the king for the edict. The uh, king didn't know what Haman was writing. We don't even know if he knew the full extent at this point because he had just hands off, let Haman do what he wanted. And so she, she shows how Haman was the one responsible. She points to Haman. Haman had written those, but they had the king's authority. They had his signet ring stamped on it. And so the king had to do something about it. And so she's asking him to reverse the edict. The problem is, in, in Persian law, a king's edict could never be reversed. Once it's out there, the king couldn't just say, oh, I made a mistake. Let's, let's write that one off. You didn't have a supreme court that could declare it unconstitutional. No, the king's edict stood. And, and it stood no matter what. And so Esther is asking the impossible. She is asking something he can't do. And I don't know if she didn't realize that or if she's hoping for some solution. I really think she's just being obedient to God without knowing how God's going to work. Isn't there a lesson there? About being obedient and following God, stepping out in faith for Him, even if we don't know how He's going to work? Because the newsflash for me is I don't have to have the future all planned out. That's God's job. I just have to obey and, and, and that's hard for me because I like to know the steps of how I'm going to get to a certain goal and then let God know that and we're good. And I don't think I'm the only one. But in this case, Esther is stepping out and risking her life for something she's not sure how it can even happen. In verse 6, for how can I, and this is Esther speaking still, for how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? And she's exposing her heart here. Jesus, it's not enough for me to be saved. This is my people and they're going to be wiped out. I could not bear that. Then we see the king's answer. Verse 7, Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, they're both in there, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. And, And the idea is, I've already helped you. I've done enough. And I'm reading between the lines a little bit here. But the idea, especially when we get to the next verse, but you may write as you please with regard to the Jews. And that you is plural there for Esther and Mordecai. The idea is I've saved you. You figure it out from here. I gave you the signet ring. And this is the Hazaras' style, right? I'm not going to get my hands dirty. I'm not going to mess with actually ruling like I should be doing. I'm just going to let other people do what they want. And and quite frankly, this is pretty despicable on his part. It's pretty despicable that he wouldn't even think of saving the people. And and maybe it's that he doesn't want to take responsibility for an edict he didn't write. I don't know, but it's wrong. And so he says, behold, I've given you the house of Haman, the estate of Haman. You're rich. I've given you, uh, I've taken care of Haman. He's hung up outside. He intended to kill the Jews. Tell you what? You take care of the rest. In verse 8, But you may write as you please with regards to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. And there we get the, the problem. The prior edict that said all people on this certain day could kill and annihilate all Jews and they are to do that cannot be revoked. And so he says, go ahead, write something else, figure it out. That can't be revoked either. And again, we see him giving up his responsibility, not taking responsibility. We see a contrast between this earthly, self-centered king that really doesn't care about his subjects, really isn't stepping in. He's really impotent when it comes to, to these decisions and doing anything. But we're going to see that's compared to our all-powerful king. Who, who says, no, no, this situation isn't a problem. I got this. I got this. Those 15 million people, 10, 15 million people, they're my people. You're not touching them. And he's about to work and reverse things. And so this section is the reversal of authority that that Esther and Haman, or Esther and Mordecai, sorry, are given the authority that was Haman's so they can act. And so God gave them the wealth and the honor in the first two verses so they could come make this request and now they have the authority to do something about it. It's interesting, just a side lesson here as we think through Esther. As we think through Esther and Mordecai who were saved, who didn't need to risk their lives. When God meets our needs, when God meets our individual needs, when life is good individually, we are still to work for the needs of others. We aren't done. God doesn't do that just to give us cushy couch lives that we can do nothing. We are to work for the needs of others and follow Esther's example here. And so even if life is good, even if God has met all our needs, if He's answered our prayers, if He's saved us, which if you know Him, He has, the question then is how do we treat others? How do we care about others? What about the less fortunate? What about the the needy? Esther's in a place of power, and wealth, and she uses that, she uses all of her resources to help those in the kingdom that are about to be killed, that are needy. What are we willing to sacrifice for others? Because there was risk here. There was risk of her life. There was risk of losing everything. I actually think maybe it was easier for her to go to the king when she had nothing, because now she's risking more. But what an example. Wearsby recounts a prayer he heard. He said, Lord, the only thing most of us know about sacrifice is how to spell the word. Ouch. Do we know what it really means to sacrifice to help others? To go beyond ourselves, to go beyond our resources, to go beyond our schedules, to go beyond our interests for the sake of showing God's love to other people. I think one of our questions would, would be, what would what, what did Jesus sacrifice to save us? Who emptied himself and took on a, upon himself the form of a servant and being made in the form of man, died on the cross, became obedient to death and died on the cross. The example of Esther here is wonderful that she was willing to sacrifice. You know, let me talk to parents for just a minute, especially those of you with young kids. Young kids are selfish and self-centered by nature, right? That's our, that's our, our, our natural man, our sin nature. And so much of culture right now is saying, well, no, no, everything's explainable. No, no, they're, they're little sinners. And that explains so much. And they have to be trained to not be self-centered. And we need to be intentional to train the next generation that life isn't about them. I know that's our youth theme this year is it's not about you. And, and we have to be intentional over and over to teach this. But, but let, me, let me just say something to parents that's on my heart. So many times we teach this by being selfish. And we're not teaching a thing. And, and so Halloween comes and we're like, I'm going to teach them it's not all about them. And I'm going to take their candy. Just a percentage, it's called a dad tax. Because I'm teaching them not to be selfish. No, no, what we've taught them is when you're in power, you can be selfish. Right? No, I'm not saying you can't have fun and eat their candy, that's awesome. but don't tell them it's to teach them not to be selfish while you're being selfish. You know what I mean? That's just a funny example, but we do this all the time because we we take things away and think we're teaching them. Moms and dads, the way that you teach your kids how to sacrifice for others and not be self-centered is to do things that are sacrificial and not self-centered yourself and to show them by example rather than forcing the principle on them. That makes sense? This is why it is so important, moms and dads, that we, we think of our schedules and say, what are we doing as a family that's sacrificial? What are we doing as a family that is serving others? Because if it's all about the school and the sports and the extracurricular activities and there's no room to do the other stuff, we, we're teaching self-centeredness. And so take advantage of those times You know, are there things that you can do this holidays for your neighbors, as a family, that maybe even you sacrifice something fun that you wanted to do, to teach, to truly teach a deeper lesson? See, it's not about our individual needs. It wasn't for Esther and Mordecai. It's about working for the needs of others. We need to live that reversal. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Put one another's interest above your own. That's what the Word teaches. So how are we showing that to our kids instead of just telling that to our kids? That's our challenge this morning out of that section. We get to, to the rest of the story. And starting at verse 9, we get reversal number 3. Helplessness to empowerment. Helplessness to empowerment. And this refers to the, the Jews that were in the land, 10 to, to, to 15 million Jews that are helpless up to this point. An edict has been given. They can all be killed on a certain day. The implications of that is they can't do anything about it be, with, with this passage and some other things culturally. And, and so they're looking at, at helplessly being eliminated, being exterminated. But the idea that God gives to Mordecai and Esther is what if we write an edict that effectively empowers them to do something about the situation, to to preserve self, to protect themselves? And so we see helplessness to empowerment. A new mirroring edict is given. So a new edict, they're going to write this new edict to allow the Jews to protect themselves, and it effectively reverses the annihilation edict. They're in deadly circumstances. They're in deadly, impossible circumstances that look like there's no way around it. And so we come to verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time. In the third month, which is the month of Savan, in the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews. To the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. Incidentally, that's the longest verse in the Old Testament. Huh. <laughs> but it, it's, it's, it's mirroring what we saw in chapter 3. It's paralleling that. And so Mordecai is going to give this edict and the instructions there, and it's helpful for us to understand chapter 3. That in chapter 3, the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month. An edict according to all Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and the officials of all the people, to every province in his own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the, the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. And so we see much of the same language except now Mordecai's writing it. One other difference, incidentally, is that the the passage in chapter 8 adds that the Jews were also told in their language. And and when you see something that wasn't there in the first one and they're paralleling each other, the implication is that maybe the Jews weren't told. I think they found out about it as they read and they they could understand other languages, but it seems as if there was a deliberate attempt with the first edict to not include the Jews, naturally, because it was to kill them. Whereas here, the point is made, no, no, no. We're making sure the Jews know about this. And again, all of that language is to show the breadth of the kingdom from India to Egypt to southern Egypt, that this was the entire kingdom that was to be let know this. Just for timing-wise, this is about two months and ten days after Haman's edict, okay? So some time has passed for, for all of these other events to happen. Then we go on in verse 10. And he wrote in the name of King Hazarus, Mordecai is the one writing this, and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. So these are the best horses, the fastest horses. Mordecai wants to ensure delivery. This was important. And the edict said, the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives word for gather there, by the way, means to muster a group or muster a force, an army. They're allowed to get together, plan a defense, and be ready for what's going to happen. Again, the first edict can't be reversed. So on this certain day, everyone's allowed to come at the Jews and kill them with with no reprisal. I know some of you are thinking The Purge or some other movies. that's, That's what the edict was. But this new edict was you can get together, gather, defend your lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. Now, this sounds pretty brutal. But the key here is they're to do this for any group that attacks them. Okay? that's That's a very important distinction. They can't just run through the land killing and plundering. That's what the Persians get to do with the first edict. That's the evil. The reversal is God is saying, I empower you. I am Actually, the king of Persia is saying this. You are empowered to defend yourselves. And so any force that comes at you, and the same exact words are used to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate, you are allowed to do that to them and be ready for them and plunder their goods. Now, now again, word for word from chapter three thirteen. He he is he is literally reversing the edict without reversing the edict. <laughs> because the idea is oh, now the Jews have protection and favor from the king. I best not attack them. That would be stupid. And and so this effectively reverses. Now we're gonna see next week that there were stupid people out there that said, oh, I'm still going to kill him, and, and we're going to see what happens with that next week. But this, is, this evens the playing field. You can't remove the first decree, but you can offset it. And I think this is brilliant. I think this is God giving wisdom to, to brilliantly find a way to protect his people. See, the goal is for no one to attack the Jews. The goal isn't for this to happen. The goal is that they don't have to defend themselves because everyone's too scared to actually do something about it but it also effectively takes only those that hate the Jews and, and puts God's judgment on them. So it's, it's just a, a brilliant reversal and God protecting his people and judging sin at the same time. Verse 12, On one day throughout all the provinces of King Hazarus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and that's the same day that, that the Persians were allowed to kill the Jews, and it says basically, don't attack the Jews on eight R thirteenth or March seventh our time. Um, they now have favor. Verse thirteen, a copy of what was written was issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. Well, the king's signet ring. And the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And so we see God using Esther and Mordecai and their newfound position of authority to allow the Jews to defend themselves. God has just reversed the irreversible. He has just done the impossible and saved his people. This is an amazing turnaround that points to our amazing God. Because I don't even think the king thought it was possible to reverse it. And God does. And God does. And, and, and that should just burn in our hearts. That God is a God that does the impossible. He changed the impossible here. He changed the deadly circumstances. If he can change circumstances that, that deal with the annihilation of a people, do you think he's got yours? Do you think he can handle your circumstances? This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. And if he's able to do this, maybe he's able to do this too. Because you and I aren't faced with the people that are going to kill us off in in seven months. You and I aren't faced with the same things. But, But yes, we have trouble and we have trials and we have situations that feel impossible. And I say that it feels impossible because it's not with God. Now again, I'm not saying that every situation is going to turn out like I want. That's not the point here. The point is God brings salvation and His plan to fruition for His glory and our ultimate good. And we trust Him in that. Village, this, this God, this character of God, what we see Him doing here is the foundation for hope and trust. And and we see stories like this over and over and over in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Why do we see stories like this? Because we learn from stories. And over and over, we see God is faithful and he is able. Trust him. And so whatever situation you're going through now, God is faithful and he is able and you can trust him. There is no question about that. That is how God has been, He has always been, and He always will be. I think in First 1 Corinthians 10.13, a passage I just love and take comfort in. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. Basically he's saying, you know what, what you're going through, the temptations, which is also the word for trials, what you're going through, it's common. But God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's a verse about reversals. That God is saying, no, the temptation seems overwhelming. The trials seem overwhelming. They seem impossible. He has already made a a way of escape. We just may not see it yet. And we can trust him that we can endure it. Reversal three is helplessness to empowerment. But really, it's not our power. It's God's power that God is doing something. Then we get to the last few verses, last three verses. Reversal number four, mourning is replaced by joy. Mourning is replaced by joy. This is the response to the edict. So, so the new edict goes out. God is, has provided salvation for his people. Keep in mind, this is a future salvation. So none of this has actually happened. Nothing's actually changed except a piece of paper posted on a wall. But mourning is replaced by joy. Let's read 15 through 17. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. What did they do after Haman's edict? Again, this is all about reversals. It's brilliantly written. Do you remember what they did after Haman's edict to kill all the Jews? It says they were confused, bewildered, they were beside themselves. The the, the city was a mess. The new edict, the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. This also could be an indication that Haman was really not liked (laughs) and they were happy to have a new second in command and that Mordecai was. But, But they were upset by the initial edict. Now they're rejoicing. Verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Let me read Esther 4.3, what happened after the first edict. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting. Four things. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Well, now that's all changed. It's all reversed. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Verse 17, in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. They are celebrating what God has done. Amen? And as we look forward to 2020, I actually want to spend some time celebrating what God is doing. And, and because this is we see again throughout Scripture. We see commands in Scripture. And we're going to look at that next week again with the, the celebration of Purim. And many, last phrase, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. I laughed when I read that. <laughs> that is so classic. But, but you see what's happening. The, everything has changed. The irreversible has been reversed. God is at work. Not, not completely enacted yet, but they see what God is doing. They are rejoicing of what God will do in many ways what God has done, what God is going to do. But what has changed is they can now have joy and light and and honor and gladness because they trust in the Lord and because He works. But the result for everyone else is you had people all over the place saying, I'm a Jew. I'm part of them. And and, and it says because fear of the Jews had, had fallen on them. It's good to be a Jew now. And so suddenly you have bandwagon jumpers, which I don't know how that works with nationality because it's like some have said, well, maybe they all proselytized and became Jews. There's a whole lot of reasons that, why that probably isn't it. Um, there's no way to do that at this point. There's no pre-system or anything, but probably some of them were just pretending to be Jews because now they can say, oh yeah, I'm a Jew. I'm, I'm 1,024th Jew. I can, I can do this. And... Um, and, and so somehow they're identifying with, um, with Jewishness to, for protection, to get the reward. If the king likes them now, I'm one of them. Some other scholars think that maybe it's that these are the people that are now siding with the Jews, that are going to, to rise up and protect the Jews, which that's a little troubling too if you were about to kill them and now you want to protect them. I, the duplicity of evil is on display here. But ultimately what it shows, don't miss the bigger picture here. Actually what it shows is that they are recognizing that God is working. That somehow this group has favor and I want to be part of them. And I would say that because of their joy, because of their hope, because of the reversal, God has exposed himself to a godless pagan culture and made himself known. And now they want something of that. They want to be part of it. Village, when we respond this way with light and gladness, joy and honor in the face of difficult circumstances, we do the same thing. We show people who our almighty God is. We show that we can trust him. And people want that. People need hope in this world. There is not a lot of hope. Just switch back and forth between the news channels. There is not a lot of hope, and people need hope. We can show them, not by arguing on Facebook or somewhere else. We can show them by our attitude. Mourning replaced by joy. When we can celebrate when God does something and before God does something, the world will take notice. And that's part of the big lesson of this chapter. Celebrate what God's doing celebrate what god will do when you're in the middle of a difficult situation that would paralyze most people in this world when they can still see an attitude that is praising god and says i know my god will work i don't know how and it doesn't have to be the way i expect it but i know my god will work and so i can take joy and confidence in that man that 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 speaks volumes to people and they will want to know why, and they will notice it because that is not normal. It's a little nuts, and so be a little nuts. By celebrating what God has done, by being countercultural. See, their joy was because of hope and trust in the Lord. Psalm thirty, verses eleven and twelve, David is celebrating the um, the um, inauguration, the dedication of the house of the Lord. He says, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. We trust that God can reverse the irreversible, but go a step further and rejoice in it and be glad in it. And show by your attitude that we are not worried because our God does great things and He is unstoppable. And He can do anything. Which means if we are coming to Him in prayer, how He ends up resolving the situation, that is for His glory and our ultimate good. Even if it's not what I asked for. Even if it's not how I wanted Him to answer, wouldn't I rather have the right answer than what I asked for? This Thanksgiving. Five days away, right? Am I close? Four days? Four days. I'm wrong. <laughs> Can't even do math today. Four days away this Thanksgiving. You have a choice. All of us have a choice. If life is good, Thanksgiving's awesome, right? I have lots to thank God for. But if life sort of sorta of stinks right now, can you still have an attitude of Thanksgiving? if you know who your God is, and if you know He's able and He's faithful, yes, you can. And have that attitude. Show that on Thanksgiving. Annoy your family with it. God is good all the time. And we can trust Him. The ultimate reversal of all this. The, the, this is just a micro story, micro chapter of God reversing the effects of evil and turning it to good. The bigger picture is God is doing that with all of creation. See, creation in Genesis 3, we fell, we rebelled against God, and the havoc that sin has wreaked on this creation ever since is horrid. And it is dark and it is impossible. But God is redeeming creation to himself through Jesus Christ. And that's the ultimate reversal, that he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins in our place to pay the penalty for those sins. God's wrath is justified. His, his wrath is abated. And he provides the ultimate reversal. And someday we will be with him if we follow him in a new heaven and a new earth because he is defeating evil. That's the bigger picture here. This chapter just is a little tiny story as part of that big picture of God preserving his people so Jesus could come. But Jesus did come and he saved us so we can be a blessing to others. Celebrate that reversal this Thanksgiving. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would work in our lives. That we would trust you to work in our lives. Lord, that every situation here, whether it be health-related or work-related or relational-related, Lord, I pray that you would work for your glory and our good. But Lord, help us to trust you in that, to take steps of obedience like Esther did, to take risks for you, and help us to take joy in the fact that you are working even before we know how. Lord, may we be a people that celebrates who you are, that relies on you and rests in you and, and just leaves our worry at your feet because you are, are capable and faithful and loving. Thank you, God, in your name, amen.